Facebook establishing a board which is being spun like a, a sort of a Supreme Court uh, and has, it seems like, a vastly different, in some ways, different types of decision making to do uh, that they might be asked to review uh, different uh, types of issues. Um, and so uh, I guess we can talk a little bit about the background of it. And I'm also wondering if you think, uh, Adriel, that this speaks to the seriousness of the of a commitment to do something or if you question uh, their commitment to do this and think that this might be uh, some other way of them, you know, kind of showing off or something. Yeah. Um- you know, I've started following Facebook a lot more closely over the past couple of months because of my own activism. You know, I'd been uh, a little bit in one corner just looking at, you know, how do you advertise successfully for candidates on Facebook? But uh, now that it's a site of some of my activism, I have to be more aware of their global policies. I've also, you know, as we've mentioned on the show before, I read Popular Information. There's been a lot of coverage there about uh, abuse of the advertising system and also um, some of these really sketchy viral marketing efforts through Facebook pages. And we'll talk a little bit about that as, as we go along here. But I, I also, one of the reporters who uh, covered uh, this Lindsey Graham Green New Deal ad that, that uh, my client, the Lefty League, did asked me, you know, would, would I be interested in being on this board or applying for it? And I told them no, um, not knowing a ton about it, because my position has been and continues to be that we need public oversight. Um, and when I read this recent article by uh, Casey Newton uh, from The Verge about this um, oversight board that Facebook plans to spend $130 million on initially uh, getting it up and running, it just screams to me of the need for public oversight and transparency because uh, as you look into the details, uh, there's things like uh, Facebook employees deciding which uh, cases to forward to this board and it being um, it, the line between this independent, you know, quasi-independent board and uh, Facebook's own operations uh, seems to be extremely fuzzy. You know, the process of picking who's going to be on that board will be something that Facebook does. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm we can talk a little bit more about the specifics from Casey's article, but I, I was wondering how you were struck by it. I thought Casey's reporting was really, you know, good and straight up the middle. It wasn't really ideological, but it, it frightens me when I hear someone saying, we're going to set up our own version of the Supreme Court to deal with content on the largest uh, content platform in the world. I think with private actors, I, there are exceptions to this because there are certainly ways in which you could, you know, say that the, you know, these are trade issues or antitrust issues, or uh, there might be, uh, you know, even securities issues that might imp uh, implicate uh, or give the government the ability to have some oversight over some of this decision making. Um, but I, I just never trust any corporation uh, to. Uh, to the, that its system of review would not be subject to the vagaries that you are concerned about here. In the article, it says that they've been working on a, quote, case management tool to be used by perhaps 100 people at a time that will route cases from Facebook to the board and its staff. And I think that's where I really was taken aback because if the cases that go to the board are still decided by uh, a 
uh, staff of Facebook uh, filtering through, or this board ends up getting huge and having all its own staff reviewing uh, things that have already been reviewed by other Facebook staff. And it goes to one idea that I've thought about for potential regulation of Facebook, which is like having a public uh, ombudsperson or a public advocate who is in charge of these kind of appeals. But I, these appeals have to be public and it has to be a separate system. And I just, I feel like the government, uh, really world governments are really falling down on this. And it's, it's difficult because the US has, because of the First Amendment, some of the best protections for speech. And it seems to me that the US should be leading on this if we do care about the First Amendment. Um, and everything's a bit topsy-turvy. Do you want to talk more about this one, or should we talk about uh, some of the cases that are, uh, you know, showing why Facebook is in such need of, uh, of better oversight? I want to come back to some of the uh, I have a couple of questions that maybe you can answer about the board proposal or, the, uh, or what looks like an impending uh, decision to create this board, uh, this review board. Um, right. but, uh, but I think that it, it actually the uh, jumping down the rabbit hole of some of these individual cases, uh, I think, are, uh, are really important because uh, reading about this Epoch Times, uh, uh, this sort of indictment of, of Epoch Times as a publication, uh, is interesting. It's also interesting because uh, a family member of mine is running for office and Epic Times put them in an article that was, this is a list of dirty communists running for office that you should be concerned about. Oh my goodness. And, and so they are, and, and they pop up in strange places, uh, let's just say. Uh, read about the Hong Kong connection. Here in San Francisco, uh, there's a print edition of the Epic Times, and the line it takes is always anti-Chinese communist government. Um, and so you you kind of have these proxy battles in different uh, around different events in uh, world affairs and and down to the level of local political elections between folks who have a Chinese mainland interest and these folks who have a Chinese mainland uh, antipathy that they're projecting uh, through the through their various publications and. Um, the background that I do know is that uh, they are related to the Falun Gong, which is a, a, a religious movement that's persecuted in uh, China and by the Communist Party. And they've become, in the Trump era, big boosters of Trump and the Republican Party, uh, mm -hmm. in large part, it seems, because of Trump's hardline against China because of the trade war. Um, and in this case, Facebook, uh, just before the, uh, the, the Christmas holiday, came out and said that they had uh, taken down more than 600 accounts tied to the Epoch Times. Um, and uh, some months ago, they stopped uh, Epoch from advertising on the platform because of abuses of advertising policies. This time, it was a network of what Facebook says and this was also, uh, a lot of this uh, was publicized by Snopes, the fact-checking site, uh, in the past couple of months, uh, that these were pages and profiles uh, run by folks in Vietnam pretending to be Americans, including using AI-generated profile photos, which is something that's becoming more common since earlier this year, uh, some open-source 
software was released allowing uh, folks to uh, to generate those those faces. It, it, it Facebook, I think, you know, they have a hard go of it. They have some really uh, tough ideological battles going on on their platform. It reminds me of another story that that we were looking at uh, not too long ago as well. That was about a uh, an Israeli network uh, that was going after uh, some of the Muslim politicians in the U.S., particularly. Mm-hmm. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. Individuals uh, in Israel, not like an Israeli government network. Right. But, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Israeli based. And yeah. just like this one, um, Epoch Times is saying that, oh, this wasn't us. This was an affiliate in Vietnam. We had nothing to do with that. You know, it's kind of rogue operation. The uh, Israeli group, it appears to be that the, uh, the motive was profit um, because Facebook is very good at generating rage clicks. There's another group um, that was recently kicked off Facebook called Rowdy Republicans, and it was an incredibly popular Facebook page, but they were using all of this right-wing content as uh, the vehicle for selling uh, books about diabetes, kind of bunk, uh, bunk medicine. It was run by an affiliate marketer. So you see these both domestic and foreign operations that are sometimes they're about money, sometimes they're about ideology. The other story that, that came out just before Christmas was from Twitter saying that they had taken down uh, a large network, almost 90,000 accounts. Um, they released data on about 6,000 that were run by a marketing firm in Saudi Arabia. Twitter took them down because of what looked uh, to Twitter like coordinated behavior on behalf of the state. And that follows uh, Saudi Arabia being implicated in two Twitter insiders uh, using their status at Twitter. These are Twitter employees to look up data on opponents of Saudi Arabia. They looked up like 6,000 different accounts that they, they shouldn't have been accessing. So these, these companies, they've become so central to our politics and uh, to influence operations. And it's just a, uh, just a you know, tsunami of abuse. Um, and it's, it's coming from all different directions. And it's sometimes hard to tell what the intent is. Like, is the intent to be rabid Republicans or to attack Muslims or to, you know, to be pro-Trump? Uh, and, and, and uh, or is it to make money? We're now seeing, you know, the news come out of these companies that they did investigate these networks. They did take down uh, a certain uh, amount of folks. But at the same time, you know, I've been obviously following closely this issue of them uh, continuing to exempt uh, politicians from from fact checking. So it's like the lines that Facebook and Twitter have to draw are really important. And uh, again, I come back to I would like to see more public oversight. How much do you know about and can you talk about the role of AI in kind of exacerbating the seriousness of this ability to do thousands of micro-targeted ads every day? Well, I think that um, it's less, a little bit less about artificial intelligence and more about automation. And this has been a problem on the platform for some time. And I can't say that I'm an expert on the evolution, like have these automated programs taken on a life of their own. I believe that a lot of what we are seeing 
is simply that there are third-party tools, and Twitter mentions them uh, in its article about uh, about taking down these Saudi-related accounts. One of the things Twitter says is that there were uh, massive amounts of posts of a non-political nature by these accounts that would then drop in coordinated uh, political influence messaging, right? And we saw this around um, Jamal Khashoggi in the past with Saudi Arabia, and we're continuing to see that they are they're aware and using this platform and even using employees of the platform to make sure that their uh, state interests are protected and advanced. And if you are um, doing work around a hashtag or work around like uh, trending events, uh, there was an article that came out recently that that was under a lot of discussion about how um, some of really uh, feel-good accounts that rack up tens of thousands of followers uh, are sometimes actually vehicles for propaganda and for, for bot activity. This is also what we're seeing with something like Rowdy Republicans on Facebook um, or what we're seeing with, uh, with Daily Wire, which is investigated by popular information for having like 14 different pages that, that kind of pop up uh, reshares of posts on a regular basis. Automation allows you to run a lot more accounts at once. Like if it was one agency running 90,000 accounts, that's incredible, right? That's a lot of accounts. And I don't know, you know how many people were behind those. If, if you can post simultaneously to a bunch of different places, or you can automate like when this hashtag appears, tweet this message with this hashtag, there's rules you can set up. It used to be... Um, and I'm sure it still is. There's very simple ways to set up these automations. Like, gosh, a decade ago, I had, uh, there was a, something called Yahoo Pipes, which allowed you to set up simple kind of if this, then that uh, commands. And uh, I had a command set up that like anytime uh, an RSS feed uh, updated with a new local news story that an account would tweet that or I had one, uh, I had these retweet bots set up that anytime a hashtag appeared, it would retweet them or anytime my account tweeted, you know, secondary account would amplify it. And what you're seeing now um, here, you know, entering 2020 is that this stuff has uh, just prolifer proliferated despite the best efforts of, of the platforms. And um, interestingly, Facebook is saying that it was the uh, AI generated profiles that probably, well, that, that made these networks easier to spot and easier to shut down. Um, because I think that that, like the use of fake profiles, that's a reason to shut down an account right there. Whereas just having, you know, an influence network in itself might not be uh, an excuse for them to shut it down. And, and they have to make these difficult decisions about what is uh, going to be allowed on on the platform, and that's again where I think we need hearings. And uh, I'm happy to know that you know some of the state senators in California are, are looking at that because these businesses are are typically based in California. One of the questions I had is who's going to be on this board? That is a is a really good question, and in the the Verge article itself doesn't uh, doesn't really get into that. <laughs> he says 2020 should bring us lots more information about the board, including its first batch of members a page that calls its journalism project. It says Facebook oversight board for content decisions, what to know. And it says that they uh, consulted more than 2000 people around the world, journalists and media leaders, and that the first board will be 40 experts. Um, and they'll have independent judgment. Uh, they'll have the power to reverse Facebook's decisions to remove content and as well uh, as recommend changes to community standards. Um, so 
they had these advisors telling them how to structure the board. From there, it looks like you know they have uh, the ability to to pick uh, those board members. And it says they want board members experienced at deliberating thoughtfully and collegially. Uh, as an open-minded contributor to a team, skilled at making and explaining decisions based on a set of policies, and familiar with matters related to digital content and governance, including free expression, civic discourse, equality, safety, privacy, and technology. Now, I um, and it says the selection process it conclude uh, will include rigorous vetting, interviews, and reference checks, and qualifications will be released to the public. They have nothing based, about representation there. What they're saying about diversity is that they will uh, look at gender, geography, cultural, and political backgrounds, a range of professional experience in free speech, human rights, civil society, publishing, academia, anthrop anthropology, and on and on. Um, uh -huh. So it looks like they're looking for diversity both in thought as well and, and background as well as geographic, gender, uh, cultural background. It says that uh, they will select the first few board members and then with Facebook, they will select additional members by the end of, uh, uh, it says the end of the year. So we should see this actually pretty soon. Um, I don't know if they're still on that same timeline. And then the board will continue to select members next year. Uh, selection process will include rigorous vetting, interviews, and reference checks. Qualifications will be released to the public. I assume with the $130 million that there will be, you know, staff and probably some uh, compensation for the board. And one concern I've had about the way Facebook is going about this is, like, for example, Facebook is paying some 44 fact-checking entities to fact-check on Facebook. Now, we saw not too long ago one of those uh, the fact-checking group from the Netherlands quit saying uh, they're there to fact-check politicians, not just, you know, somebody's viral post. Those fact-checkers, whether or not in their regular practice, they fact-check politicians, they can't do it on the platform. And so to some extent, but they're being paid, you know, well by Facebook, right? So to some extent, Facebook, like, sort of ruins journalism in terms of profitability by pulling all the ads onto its site. And then they say, well, we're going to create these new rules. And they say, and we're going to pay independent people to enforce our rules. Um, and I feel that there is an ethical dilemma on whether you are a fact checker for Facebook or whether you are on the board of this Facebook entity, because uh, it's definitely not really independent. It's Facebook's board. It'll be interesting to see, you know, who goes on it and what folks who either, um, you know, publicly refuse uh, or, or qualified to be on the board based on the criteria that Facebook's put out there uh, have to say about this. And hopefully we can talk a lot more about this in the coming year. But it, again, it seems a bit like abdication of responsibility of democratic government to now allow these corporations or to uh, leave these corporations to their own devices to set up their own uh, internal legal systems, including what they purport to be, uh, you know, third party or uh, independent uh, boards and fact checking regimes. I agree. And I think another test that we, that remains to be seen is how transparent that decision making process, some of those decisions and processes are. Uh, uh, since the problem now is that the review process is not transparent, will this truly increase the transparency or will, will there be an opacity involving the, uh, the, deliberations uh, of the board. Uh, and I think another, you know, question will be also be how uh, dissents, uh, dissent uh, on the board 
will be publicized or not publicized. Uh, and if somebody has a really bad experience on the board, they're going to, you know, maybe jump off of it and they may have some things to say. And of course, I think, you know, the, the media is going to be looking at all of this really uh, cl closely, uh, I, I would think. Uh, and so, uh, we'll we'll see all of this, but really, it does still feel like this kind of corporate self policing to me. I think one of the biggest things for listeners, particularly political practitioners, looking at Facebook's and Twitter's decisions to pull content or to ban accounts, because both of these are networks, we're always kind of trying to build our own networks on them. People are trying to get Twitter followers. They're following other people. They're retweeting things. Um, and it just shows that we got to take things with a grain of salt. I've started, when I see a really viral statement on Twitter, I've started looking at who's saying it. Do I know who they are? How recently was the account created? Um, even if I agree with the messaging, I don't want to amplify disingenuous content. And, and it's difficult. It's not uh, a place where you can just trust that, oh, this, these are, these are you know, friends or friends of friends. Um, often I'll see an account that's really suspicious that'll have a lot of people following it that I follow. That kind of user care, obviously, uh, you're not going to always be able to do it. But I would say we're all going to be better off if we take these platforms with a bigger grain of salt. Uh, and especially if we're out there advocating for candidate or candidates or causes, don't put yourself in a situation to be undermined by disingenuous actors, whether they're doing that for ideological reasons or whether they're doing it uh, to, uh, to get you to go to clickbait sites. Um, and sometimes it's hard to tell which is which. And especially on the left, where we uh, are often sharing and promoting opinions that are uh, less popular in the mainstream media, um, it, it is a little bit more incumbent on us to be judicious. Seems to me like 2019 went, went by really fast. I uh, cannot believe that we're already at the end of it. Um, and, but it's been a, that was a busy year for you. Uh, you, uh, um, decided to, uh, to uh, take aim at some, uh, at some windmills or, uh, <laughs> or mm -hmm. oligarchs. And, uh, so now what do you have, uh, what do you have going, um, for you? Uh, what, what does 2020 look like for, for Adriel? Well, 2020 is going to be really interesting. I, one thing I'm really interested in is ensuring that independent voters in California, there's about 6 million of them, people who aren't registered with a party, uh, know that they can request a democratic crossover ballot, both the American Independent Party, which is a, a right-wing, extreme right-wing party, very small, but it has a confusing name um, for people who, who consider themselves to be politically independent. The Democratic Party and the Libertarian Party all have open uh, uh, primaries in California where you can vote. So if independents want to vote for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or another candidate uh, for president on the Democratic ticket, they need to ask for that crossover ballot. So um, it's, uh, if you're a mail voter, you've probably already received something in the mail that you could send back to get that ballot. Um, but we're going to be releasing uh, more information about how to do that. I think that's going to be one of my, uh, my political action committee projects uh, in early 2020 is, is putting out uh, the best information we can about how to do that. Some folks have urged 
um, people to re-register as Democrats. I won't argue in favor of that, but it is slightly more complicated if you remain MPP to get that that ballot. And one one way to do it is is to uh, just uh, contact your registrar. I think 2020 will go even faster than 2019. There's a lot of uh, state elections and there's a big battle for control of state legislatures uh, due to the census. Uh, the state legislatures often uh, being responsible for uh, new lines after the 2020 census that will uh, really affect uh, our federal and state politics for a decade to come. I think my firm will be active in a lot of these different state races, both uh, training folks and and probably uh, hiring uh, folks to work. So I wanted to share a, a pretty simple tip with you today, but it's something that I just stumbled upon. Uh, I was looking for how to share video on Twitter with attribution and with a view count, but without doing a full retweet, because a lot of times uh, the videos will have commentary and I want to put my own commentary on them. Uh, what I found is that if you simply click on the little uh, down arrow at the top right of a tweet on twitter.com, you can click uh, embed tweet, then you can get embed code that normally you could drop uh, in a website, uh, on a web page, and it would show the fully embedded tweet. But just do uh, a search or just eyeball it and grab the URL that starts with pick, P-I-C dot. Um, So you're not looking for an HTTPS, you're just looking for that uh, pick prefix. And that uh, link, that URL, uh, if you drop that into a tweet, it'll show attribution. Um, so to show if a video came from Adriel Hampton, they can click right back to my profile. Um, and it'll also show the original view count of that video so that you're not uh, having to rip a video down and repost it. And also you can share that uh, tweet without having to retweet the entire message. And I assume, uh, because I've seen a lot of videos like this on Twitter, that there's other ways to do this. Maybe some of the third-party apps allow you to share the video without the commentary. But this is how I found it, to do it on Twitter.com and wanted to share that with you today. I actually think that that's such a, an important issue. And in general, media sharing uh, often involves really tough attribution questions. And so knowing how to do it easier in this case uh, I had reshared my own stuff, uh, you know, by reposting the video and restarting the view count. Like that's one one issue, especially like if already a few thousand people have watched a video, you want that statistic to show up when you share that video. Um, but if I want to repost it, this is the best way to do that rather than uh, re-uploading, you know, a, a clip. <laughs> 